hey guys, uh, those of <clears throat> those of you watching this as it comes out <clears throat> know that this episode is delayed. So for a little bit of historical context, I've been very sick the last few days. Uh, normally I record these episodes quite a bit in advance and upload them in advance so they simply go live at their scheduled time. Uh, as of this very moment, I'm several hours late on this video because obviously I haven't recorded it yet because I'm recording it right now. <clears throat> so for those of you watching this today, uh, I apologize for the delay. Obviously, I'm still having issues. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Come on. <clears throat> Hopefully, I'll be able to get through this without much issue. So, Babylon 5, right. Uh, this is a good example, in my opinion, of an episode where... Well, one thing I've noticed uh, in writing in general, especially in the last several years, is the expectation on doing the unexpected. Like, everything has to be unexpected. You can't do the expected thing. You have, you have to make some kind of twist, or you have to do something that isn't cliche, or you have to do something normal. And, and the words, you know, cliche and standard and obvious are thrown around as insults to storytelling. Now, granted, I take a bit of uh, personal interest in this topic, and I feel very uh, hurt, for lack of a better term, at those kind of insults, because that's my storytelling style. I am a very obvious writer. If you look at what I'm writing, you can tell what I'm going to be doing and where my story's going, pretty obviously and pretty early. And so it kind of hurts when people are like, ah, your, story, your writing is terrible because it's obvious. Now, obviously, I don't agree with that mindset, not just because that is my writing style, but in general. I do still enjoy a story I can predict as long as it is well presented, as long as it is well written, as long as there's something about it that's good. There's nothing necessarily wrong with doing the obvious thing. This episode is a great example of that. Granted, I've obviously seen all this stuff before, but even the first time through, everything in this uh, in the episode was, was very obvious. There were no twists. You know, finding out that uh, the gentleman whose name I can't even remember right now... Um, was actually with uh, with the home guard. That, that, that was completely expected. I mean, it's just so obvious by the way it was presented. But that didn't make it less enjoyable for me. There are a few other things that you can predict. But eh. I I'm, I'm, I don't want to necessarily just lay this down as writ law, though. I'm curious of your guys' thoughts. But I will say this in defense of my viewpoint on this argument. If you go out of your way to constantly enforce a particular mindset in your writing style, in my opinion, you're going to get worse results because you're always shackled to a concept. Uh, I've talked about this before, actually, in Final Fantasy and gameplay design, actually. The fact that they had to reinvent the wheel every new game meant that they actually hampered their development of the Final Fantasy series. And it's true here, you know, if you are a writer who has to write something unexpected or unwieldy, you'll you'll find yourself pigeonholed or trying to, to work in a specific angle. And I hate to point this out, but if you're always doing something unexpected, that's pretty expected at that point, isn't it? So those are just my thoughts on it. I'm not necessarily saying that it's writ law, that's just the way I feel about it. And I feel the need to defend myself on that every now and again. One of the other things I like about episodes like this is this is setting building. I actually have a note further down here. I'm going to shove up on the line here. Uh, there are actually four plots to this episode, and you can kind of get away with that in a television series. It's one of the reasons I've railed so hard against the A-plot, B-plot format uh, and its overuse over in Voyager. Because you don't need to have an A-plot. You don't need to have a B-plot. You don't need to have, you know, oh, the ship is in danger, or oh, the station is in danger, or oh, whatever. You don't need to... 
do that necessarily because a television show by its nature, because of the length and breadth of what you can do with a show, you can tell longer stories, have longer arcs, have more establishment, do more slow boil. There's a different storytelling style, for example, between this and, say, a movie. A movie you have one, two, like three, depending on the, the, the format, uh, hours to do everything. And if, at that most, if you, if you make multiple movies, which is a huge risk in its own right because of the sheer amount of time and money that goes into making a movie, um, you, know, you, you have another one to three hours or another one to three hours, and you have very little time to, 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 to tell longer stories. That's why movies rely so much more on visual storytelling and audio storytelling, you know, not dialogue, in order to cram the information in there because a movie can do that. Television doesn't have to, because they've got 20 episodes, 20-ish hours, you know, probably more like 19 hours or something like that, of time to work with. There's so much more breadth there that you can do. Um, I'm not saying television's superior to film, by the way, don't misunderstand me, but I've found that, uh, like, 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 for me personally, you know, if I was given a choice to work on a film or uh, a, a television series, I'd probably pick television series, because it appeals to my type of writing better, because there's more I can do with it, right? It'd be more challenging to do a film, but probably a lot of fun too. But I mention that because this episode is is setting building. It's all about establishment. Here's something you know. We've got the A plot, which is establishing the home guard and going over that, which I'll talk more about in a minute. Then there's the B plot, which is about the Centauri and and more about their customs and their function and how they work. Yada yada yada. Then there's the C plot, which is all about Susan, you know, Ivanova. And, uh, and her past and, and establishing her more as a character. And then there's the D-plot, which is more working on the Vorlons and, and adding to the mystique of them. Four plots in this episode. It's nice. Um, <coughs> I'm going to talk about the Vorlons first because I have the least to say about them. This episode just goes out of its way to basically put up on screen what we surmise. Now, that's kind of a risky venture. Oh, I need to talk about the risky thing, too. I'll get to that. Um, that's kind of a risky venture because some there's there's an ongoing debate that's been going on for basically all of human history uh, about how obvious or how obtuse you should be in your writing. Um, some people think in one extreme, some people think another, some people think somewhere in the middle. I admittedly lean more towards the obtuse. I prefer to leave a lot of it up to either interpretation or paying attention. The kind of stuff you literally will not notice <coughs> until your second time watching or playing or reading or whatever. So uh, that, that, that's just preference though, right? Um, but that is a risk, especially since... You know, it t this is real life, right? And this ties into the risky thing I'm going to talk about in a second. If you make a show where everything is super subtle and, and you can't really pick up on things because you don't have all the information yet, that show will be great. Uh, well, okay, let's assume it's well-written. Let's just get that out of the way. That show will be great, but it will be even better on second viewing. And that's a great thing, artistically speaking. It's not a great thing when you're making the show and you're trying to, to make some network executives happy because and, and, your viewing figures are down. And you're like, okay, yeah, um, so I know not a lot of people are watching our show because nobody can figure out what the hell's going on. But trust us, it's going somewhere. You know, it's a hard sell, right? Which brings me to the risky thing. So I mentioned uh, the, the, the different things you can do with a television uh, series as opposed to a film, right? You know, the thing I just mentioned. It is admittedly risky to not go with the standard A-plot, B-plot format. Let me explain what I mean by that. It, it could be argued that a television series, every episode should be able to stand on its own. I don't personally agree with that. I think a television series should be able to stand on the series. 
At the very tightest, I would say it has to be able to stand on the seasons. For example, Star Trek Enterprise overall is a show I enjoy because seasons three and seasons four were actually quite good. Seasons one and seasons two can go screw themselves, but, you know, that's the, the three and four were still enough to outweigh some of that, at least for me. Point is, <coughs> I'm not, <coughs> it's not in my mindset to look at a single episode and judge a series based on a single episode, good or bad, right? But, but, that is, again, in the idealistic, you know, money doesn't matter, figures don't matter, network executives don't exist world, which doesn't exist yet because the Operation Bellhammer hasn't been commenced yet. We're working on it, I swear. Um, in real life, we have to deal with the fact that money is a thing, and money governs television. It does. It, there's, there's no denying it. There's no reason to go around it. Money is why television exists. Television shows exist to make money. The end. So, if you are not engaging as much of an audience as possible each single episode that comes out, you are running a risk of losing audience members, you're running the risk of losing uh, those viewing figures, and then you're running the risk of your executives or the people in charge or whatever saying, well, you're not making money, or you're not making enough money, or you're actually losing money. So, plug. And uh, I hate to say it, but that's one of the reasons why several shows, good, great shows, have been canceled over the years. Um, in fact, and this is not quite a spoiler, Babylon 5 is not immune to this. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this when it's more relevant, but Babylon 5 was originally intended to be a five-season show. I know what you're saying. It is a five-season show. Yes, but they didn't know that at the time. They were told season four was going to be their last season, and they were going to be chopped off. And so, if you ever wonder why season four, uh, for those of you who have watched this show, is just non-stop, condensed action, awesome, amazingness, it's because it's two seasons condensed into one. And then they did, and then that was very engaging to everyone and had great viewing figures, and so they got a fifth season. And now they're like, well, crap, now what? And that's why fifth season five doesn't really fit with the rest of the show all that well. Uh, I may be getting my numbers wrong. Maybe it's three and four. I'm really out of it right now. I apologize, but you get the point. This is the reality of it. Again, it would be wonderful to look at the idealist who is me and say, yeah, you know, television should be a great, wonderful, artistic medium of expression. But it isn't. It's there about the frickin' money. And I hate that. I hate it. But it is something we have to deal with for the moment. So, as much as I eat episodes like this up, episodes like this are probably part of why Babylon 5 was going to be cancelled early. Because it didn't engage on an individual level. And this is why shows like Voyager have the... I, I, my favorite example of this ever is the episode The Swarm, which is season 2 or 3. I, I think it's season 3. Um... <clears throat> which has this wonderful, engaging, in-depth plot about the Doctor and about his character growth and about the, the morality of, of memory tampering and just tons of amazing, great stuff there. And then the ship's in danger. And I'm saying that fully derogatorily on purpose. The ship's in danger plot is stupid in that episode. But it's there to have the action... You know, requirement and the and the to have to have that in episode engagement because no one's going to care about the doctor and his personal growth, or at least not as many people are going to. You see the problem here? That is the world we live in. Forgive me, I'm feeling really cynical and bitter right now, but this might be part of why. Next point I want to get into the Mimbari. Um, I love the fact that there's going to be a Mimbari poetry reading on Earth. 
for those of you who have not seen, I did a little uh, lore run on Fallout New Vegas, and the very first thing I talked about was currency and why the specific usage and style of currency was a great aspect of setting building. And I talked about it for like 40 minutes, explaining why that was so brilliant. Um, this is another one of those tiny little things that had a lot of thought put into it that has long-standing ramifications. A Minbari, the conquering race who nearly wiped out the human race, is going to have a poetry reading on Earth. Think about that. Think about how much that means. <laughs> Think about the implica implications and uh, <clears throat> the dangers involved. Think about how it showcases the Mimbari reaching out to Earth with their culture, which, as we know by the Mimbari, even at this point in time, culture is a, the Mimbari culture is hugely important to them. So sharing their culture with these people that they nearly wiped out, that is a huge deal. That is a huge, you know, opening themselves to the vulnerability of the matter and, 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 and a sign of respect uh, towards the humans and towards Earth in general. And the fact that Earth is willing to allow that, that EarthGov is, yes, yes, please, send a Minbari to us, again, shows the level that they're willing to go, yada, yada, yada. I'll talk more about uh, the significance of that when we get to one of my two, yes, two political discussions for this episode. Um... But I love that. I love the little setting building there. Uh, I also love the fact that there... I should stop playing with my code. I'm sorry, I'm really... Uh, um, I love the term Sinclair uses, hate peddlers. That is so accurate. I'm going to use that term like from now on, hate peddlers, to describe idiots who do, do exactly that, who are like, oh, we should all hate you know, gays or blacks or, or other nations or separate genders or different aliens. or It doesn't matter. And I think that's that, and I'm going to talk about that in, in just a second here. Um, actually, I think I'll talk about it now because I'm already getting into it. It doesn't matter what you're peddling the hate of. Here in human history, we've seen that a, a few trillion times. Ah, video games aren't art. They're stupid and terrible and dumb, and all they do is lead kids to do violent sprees, and they're wasting their lives. Ah, television isn't art. It's just something you can smack yourself on the boob tube and just watch. And, ah, books aren't art. It's just something you'd read to entertain yourself when you should be out working. Ah, theater isn't art. It's just something that only trashy, underclass people... You get my point. And I'm just using, like, mediums, never mind people... I, I don't, I, again, I don't like to get into too much political heavy, uh, uh, high octane, that's a bad phrase, uh, discussions on my show. But really? Really? We, we as a species have been doing this bull crap forever, for as long as we are aware of our own history. Hate peddlers. Doesn't matter what. Doesn't matter what the target is. There's always someone who just wants to hate other people. Or other things, or the concepts, or whatever. And it's disgusting. I love the fact that JMS so clearly uh, uses the method of storytelling of Babylon 5 to highlight this. Let me explain what I mean by that. A lot of times in this show, we will see uh, two or three or more uh, sides of a debate. <clears throat> and JMS usually goes out of his way to uh, show the sides equally, right? So you can make up your own mind. You know, do you agree with them? Do you agree with them? Doesn't matter. They don't. He doesn't pontificate. If you know, wrong word. He doesn't speechify. That's still the wrong word. Uh, he doesn't get in a, a freaking soapbox. There we go. And I, I mentioned this, and I hate to bring up Star Trek into this, but several episodes of TNG specifically, the writer of a given episode would get up on a soapbox and say, well, this is what I argue with, and therefore I'm going to write the episode as if this is the absolute truth. 
because it's what I agree with. You know, it's it, it's a problem. It's it's what writers do. I've done this myself. I freely admit this. I agree with A, and therefore A is the absolute truth. You know, I get that. I do, really. Um, but JMS is really good about showcasing, you know, well, if you believe this or you believe that or you do this, you do that, to showcase them equally. All equally good, equally bad, equally neutral. One exception that I can think of right now, and maybe there'll be exceptions in the future, but the one exception is hate peddlers. People who are intolerant of other people. The one group he has no tolerance for is intolerant people. I'd make the, uh, the, uh, oh, shoot, the joke. <laughs> I can't think of the name of Austin. Austin Powers. I'd make the Austin Powers here jo joke here, but then people might think I was being serious. But yeah, the only thing I, I hate is other people who are intolerant of other people's cultures and the Dutch. Yeah, there, there you go. There, I said the joke. I have nothing against the Dutch. Um, but seriously, it's, it's true. The, I, I tend to have this viewpoint myself. Tolerance for other people? Yeah, that's easy. Tolerance for other people who are intolerant? Well, screw them. South Park even did this, for God's sakes. I'm all for understanding, but screw you people, you know? I love that he showcases the intolerant bastards of of the Home Guard and, and various other individuals, and this is not exclusive to this episode, as bastards, as people who are mongers. Of just of just deranged or depraved or unpleasant or just he, he makes absolutely no attempt to whitewash them at all. They are bad, and I like that. Um, it's also nice to have the occasional black in a series that is so almost universally gray. Uh, there's also very little white in the series too, although. Eh. Um, uh, okay, so uh, let's talk about the Centauri a little bit, the B-plot. Uh, first of all, I love the fact that Londo's like, why are our people being taken here? And, and Sinclair says, well, they're they're thieves. They, they have stolen credit chips. And Londo's response is, oh. And I like that because that is so wonderfully in character. I could see several other people, especially Jakar, saying, they were just defending their right, or they're you know, trying to stand up for them, my, my species right or wrong, which I'll be talking about later. But Londo's just like, oh, okay, well, they're, okay, fine, I'll deal with them. But the whole B-plot has, I want to talk about the majority of that later. But I do love his wonderful line, which I was hoping to do full volume, but my throat just isn't supporting it. Forgive me, so... <clears throat> in quote. What does love have to do with marriage? Except he basically shouts the line. Love that line. So true, too. Uh, don't you agree? I'm sorry. Cynical. Cynical. Um, but regardless of cynicalness or humor, it is a wonderful insight into Centauri mindset. We already know that the Centauri play the, the purple game, the game of politics, the game of backstabbing. Uh, we also know that uh, if you don't play the game, <laughs> if, you're a, if you're a Centauri who refuses to, to submit to that kind of, well, let's face it, unpleasant reality, then you're screwed. We, we actually met a woman who was in such a way screwed because she was a freaking slave, a legal slave because of the fact that she or her family or whoever had refused to play the game. And that's just the nature of their society. I find that fascinating because in a really strange way, it's logical. Uh, backwards, in my opinion. Uh, barbaric, in my opinion. But logical. And the reason why is because when a species is first getting going, 
Uh, there tends to be a lot of competition. Oh, excuse me, a lot of competition. Uh, a lot of backstabbing, a lot of infighting. But I mean in the more literal sense, as in literally stabbing someone in the back, literally killing someone over food or breeding ground, uh, breeding rights, I should say, or uh, you know, uh, to have uh, a particular location that is safer or more sheltered or whatever, you know. And I'm not even going far that back. You know, you go back 2,000 years and you see that kind of thing. We, we may have had a civilization 2,000 years ago, but we still had a lot of actual killing going on because of that kind of nature. Now, it's logical over time for a species to become more, for lack of a better term, civilized and that kind of literally murdering each other over, you know, base requirements to become less and less of a thing as base requirements become more and more accessible. Even the, you know, I, I know this isn't true universally across the entire planet, but, you know, even someone who is very poor here in the States usually still has things like food, shelter, and transportation. You know, needs are met. It is wants that people tend to fight over at this point in time. But so it is logical for, the, for that fighting to, to take a new format, basically, to no longer be literally, I'm going to beat your skull in because I want what you have, instead for me to try and politically maneuver you in a situation where you will not either be willing to give me it, or I could blackmail you into it, or you lose your position and I just take it, you know, that kind of a thing. And it makes sense for an entire culture to have developed in such a way. One could argue we have developed that way here in real life, but I don't want to get too much into that topic at all. Um... So yeah, the Centauri game is interesting and fascinating to me as, in the same way that it is basically uh, uh, horrifying, I think is really the word I want to use there, because it really is kind of an all-inclusive thing. If you don't play the game, you're screwed. So you have to play the game, in which case you're screwed. I mean, it's, it's truly a no-win no scenario. It is interesting, too, because it means the, min, uh, excuse me, the Centauri, I always get those names confused with them, Centauri and Minbari, I don't know. Um, it means the Centauri are ripe for revolution. Uh, they have an entire culture which is basically stagnant at this point as a result of that. If only someone would come along, someone named Londo Malare. No? Oh, whatever. Oh, my God. Um, I do also, uh, I'm reminded very strongly, as well in the political marriage thing, of the series Dune. D-U-N-E. I know I'm... I'm you, it's probably hard to understand right now. I'm really sorry. Dune. The books. The series. The movie. Whatever you want to call it. Dune. Um, the reason why is one of my favorite aspects of Dune, uh, and at the same time one of the most horrifying aspects of Dune, is the politics. The fact that, I can't remember her name, refused to actually marry uh, the Duke. the bear, or, Yeah, the Duke. Of House... Uh, uh, House Atreides, God, I'm, I'm out of it. Uh, specifically so that he would be free to marry for political reasons is exactly what I'm talking about. Now, the two of them were, in every way that matters, married. They were lovers. They loved each other. They cared about each other. They were friends. They were close. And they had, you know, it, right. But politically, on paper, she didn't marry so that he would have that availability for political reasons. That's very, very Centauri, or I should say Centauri is very that. Um... And uh, it's also screwed up for all the reasons it was screwed up in Dune. <laughs> Come on, throw. A little bit longer. A little bit longer. Um, I think this is a good time to go ahead and get into my final topics here. Uh, one, one last thing before I get into my political topics. Uh, 
the game Sinclair plays in this episode is very dangerous. And I found myself wondering several times if it was worth it. There's no way he's going to be in, able to infiltrate the Home Guard sufficiently to really do long-term damage to the entire organization. Now, he did uh, learn about the mass assassination attempt, and he did capture quite a few people who probably squealed on quite a few other people. So that's a lot of the Home Guard's influence shut down, and that's a definite victory. But in exchange for that victory, he was willing to alienate the aliens, ironically, uh, both in the actual council during that wonderful scene, but also the way he was acting around Delenn and, I don't think her name was ever given, the other alien. It's very, uh, it was very, very risky what he was doing. He was gambling high. Uh, it did pay off in the end, but I, I would imagine a scene, that there's no need to show this on camera, but a scene where he goes over to Delenn and says, look, this is what I was doing, I'm sorry, it was terrible. You get the impression that happened before the last scene, because Delenn comments <coughs> on uh, human ways, you know, taking some getting used to, uh, right at the end there. So, this episode is a very good example of why the Horde and the Alliance will always be at war. Go ahead, connect the dots. I know you can do it. <laughs> so you have two sides in the Horde and the Alliance, and they've been at war, in, well, okay, they have been antagonists towards each other for a long time, and at war twice. And, uh, whew, there's a lot of bad blood there right? Well, would you believe that, statistically speaking, well over half of both sides don't actually hate the other? Suspicious, sure. Mistrustful, sure. But, you know, if you asked, the majority of Alliance players, or not players, uh, individuals, would say, no, we're cool with not going to war with the Horde, and vice versa. That's not the problem. The problem is when you throw something into the mix like, oh, I don't know, the Twilight's Hammer which we'll be discussing during the Wild Lore Run. Get hyped. Please. <laughs> the point yeah, I'm trying to reach here a little bit laboriously, forgive me, is if you have groups of people who don't like each other that much or have reason to dislike each other, it is extremely difficult for peace to actually exist there. I'm going to try and discuss this as best as I can. So we have all these alien races and Babylon 5, which is trying to prevent a new war. And we already know that there's some antagoniz uh, antagonization going on between the various species, right? We also know that clan mentality exists. Uh, for those not aware, clan mentality is, you know, my race, my gender, my species, my, uh, my nation... Uh, my hometown, you know, whatever. Rooting for the home team concept, taken to an extreme. I'm not against rooting for the home team, you know. Uh, although I don't remember who the home team is of the Atlanta. But anyways, it doesn't matter. Point being, rooting for the home team is great and fine and all. But uh, when you take it to an extreme, as in my home team is the only one that matters, my home team is always more important than your team, that's when it gets a little silly. And someone who is, uh, I'm just going to dive into this, an American, saying in a situation where an American is injured by, say, a British gentleman or, or an Indian gentleman or whatever, it doesn't matter, you know, another race, uh, we'll, we'll just go with British. Uh, so a British person has, has injured an American person, okay? You'd be surprised how many Americans would immediately be like, oh my God, that British person should be punished. And how many British people would be like, oh my God, that British person shouldn't be defended. 
It's the clan mentality. Now, I gotta be honest, this is kind of weird for me to talk about, because this is such an alien concept to me. I don't get this at all. I do not understand the concept of, well, I am a human, and therefore humans are better than other races, so, you know, I'm going to side with humans over others. You know, that that's just such a uh, bizarre thought process to me. You know, I, I live in the United States, and therefore any, you know, any state's dweller, an American, is, is, is someone I'm going to side with against. That, that's stupid. <laughs> I don't understand that mentality. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that's stupid. I don't want to be so judgmental sounding. But the point is, it's, it's alien to me. I don't get it. But I see it a lot, in real life and in fiction. Uh, there's actually a trope for this. It's basically called My Country, Right or Wrong. And the idea is, whether or not I agree with something that, you know, my clan, whatever that's defined as, does, I'm going to side with them because they're my clan. And that's how hate groups like this get started, in real life and in fiction. Well, you know, all insert category A people are like me, and therefore I am in favor of them, but those insert category B people are not like me, and therefore I hate them. This also makes things very difficult. You're, you're probably wondering about the Horde and the Alliance thing. Let me tie that back in here. So we have these two these groups, right? And the Narn really highlighted exactly how bad this situation can get, because if a Narn had been attacked, we would have seen a very clear example of escalation because of the fact, I, I mean, literally, even if a Narn had walked up to a human and started beating the crap out of him, and the human, you know, the humans tried to save the human and injured or killed the Narn, the Narn would have been up in arms about that because a Narn was hurt by a human. You see how this works out? <coughs> now it gets much worse, because... It's actually understandable why everyone's on such pins and needles about this. The only way for a situation for for disparate sides like disparate sides like this to actually have peace is for both sides to look at the other and say, "Okay, we're willing to tolerate the fact that you're going to violate the peace against us," and I mean that sincerely. That's how that works. Because there will always be radicals, there will always be individuals, there will always be outliers. If 99% of the Horde was in favor of peace with the Alliance, that 1% would be actively trying to attack or destroy or kill Alliance people. And therefore the Alliance would see Horde attacking the Alliance. And what conclusion are they going to come to? And it's the same damn thing we're seeing here. What do the Narns see? A radical group of humans who are uh, not you know, condoned or not allowed or whatever, uh, who, who are criminals, and, 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 and if in every way that matters, terrorists, who are attacking Narns, that's not what they're going to see. They're going to see humans attacking Narns, because that's what is happening. And it's easy to understand that. It's even easier to understand why it's so hard to take that. I mean, can you imagine, just imagine Sinclair walks up to Jakar and says, Jakar, listen, there's this radical group, they're called the Home Guard. They're 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 screwed up in the head. They're 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 totally bat bat mind crazy doom. Okay, we don't need to deal with them, uh, or rather we do need to deal with them. But we as humans, the 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 government of humanity is nothing against the Narn. We are totally willing to work with you and help you on this. Blah blah blah. And let's say Jakar says, okay, I accept your explanation, and they stop the rave of attacks. Everything's great. A few months down the line, another attack happens because there's a crazy guy or there's a drunk or there's another hate peddler, or whatever. Because this kind of situation is always going to exist, right? And it is. And it's sad, but it's true. 
So now what? Well, Jakar, this is not a human. This is a well. I mean, it is a human, but you know, it's not. It's not one of us. Okay. And then it happens again, and then it happens again, and then it happens again because it's always going to happen. At some point or another, there's always going to be a human going after an Arn, a Horde going after Alliance, a Centauri going after a Minbari, you know, whatever. The lines don't matter. There will always be hate peddlers. There will always be idiots who try to make themselves feel better by going after people who are not like them. And so how do you understand that? How do you, as a government, which is consistent of hundreds or thousands of people, say, we, the people, accept that your pe you, the people, are on our side, but also there's those guys who are constantly killing our people? How do you accept that as a government? You have to show some kind of response. You cannot simply lie back and let that happen. Not only is that a huge sign of weakness, it will actually encourage the hate peddlers to keep going. Because they'll look at it in one of two ways. One, oh, they're weak, so we can just keep going after them. Or two, oh, those bastards, how dare they continue to have peace with us? We must kill them even more. It's a messed up situation. Ah, oh, that's what Pluto's for. Now, <clears throat> the, uh, do I have any, hang on, let me check my other notes here. Oh yeah, the other thing I have a note here, and this is, the Horde Alliance thing really shines a light on this. One of the big reasons it's so bad with the Horde and the Alliance is that's been happening for years and years and years and years. And the longer it goes, it goes on, the worse it gets. And that's kind of the reality. You know, the longer you have these antagonizing <laughs> situations between these sides, the worse the, those wounds will get. Because then you'll have a new generation who has also grown up in the time of, oh, and by the way, those guys are bastards. And yeah, you see how that works out. The other thing I want to discuss here is arranged marriages and political marriages, both of which are basically the same topic in many ways. Forgive me. Come on, throat. A little longer. Arranged marriages is something I'm actually against, personally. Uh, you'll notice I don't have a ring on my finger, to put it bluntly. But my reasoning for this is uh, is is personal, not cultural, if that makes any sense. In other words, I actually get a lot of the benefits of, 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 of arranged marriages. Uh, let me just bring up one little thing. Again, we're, this is my, you know, political discussion thing. I need to come up with a name for this segment, you know, because I've got the, the, the discussion in the episode, and I've got the spoilers thing. I do have one spoiler thing to talk about at the end of this one. And then I've got, like, the, the hot-button topics thing, and that's going to be a regular feature in Babylon 5. I need to come up with a name. Anyone got any ideas? I'm, I'm listening. Um, so... I'm just going to hit this right out the bat. Okay, so most people don't know what they want when it comes to romance. They don't. It's, it's Part of growing up and getting older is understanding who and what you want in a partner, right? If you're 11 or 14 or 18 or 20 or even 30, you probably have no idea what you want. You might have, I, I suppose I'm being exaggerative, you might have an idea of what you want, but you, you don't really know. Um... There's a reason divorce rates are so damned high. Now, part of that reason is because people get married at the drop of a hat, when in fact, I don't agree with that at all. You should probably be with someone for years, plural, before you actually decide to hit the marriage step to you know, hit all of the, take the acid test and hit all of the, uh, the steps on the way. Then decide to spend the rest of your life with someone. Go take your time, guys. There's no rush here. Uh, but the other problem, again, is it's like, ah, oh, I want this person. 
now in my life I want this person. Three years pass by and it's like, well, I don't want this person anymore. And I'm not defending it, I'm not going against it, but it's a reality of free marriage or whatever you want to call that. It's one of the reasons why it's such a hassle and such a pain. The other reason is legality, which I, I'm going to give my response in very quickly here. <coughs> now that I've said that, I'm sorry, but marriage is just a piece of paper as far as so many things are concerned. Real marriage, actually being with someone forever, that's something that is a little deeper than a few scribblings on a piece of wood that has been condensed into fiber. But the real point I'm trying to make here is that there are actually a lot of pros to arranged marriages. Because usually, asterisk, Arranged marriages are done with a great deal of thought and care in mind. I'm going to betroth you to this person, and I'm not just going to randomly throw you at someone because, you know, and insert reason A. Now, obviously this ties into the political marriage thing, because a lot of arranged marriages were done for political reasons. That's obviously a different category, and I'll kind of talk about that more in a second. But my point is, I know actually several people... Uh, personally, who were in, uh, who have been in arranged marriages, and I talked with them about it extensively because the thought was so alien to me at the time. It's like I, I could not picture, you know, my mom pic- picturing and choosing who my my mate is going to be. That's ridiculous. Uh, the way it was explained to me is there's two major pros to it, and the one I already kind of mentioned. Their parents really put a lot of thought into it. They're like, you know, this person in these circumstances, these places, and two, this is really the important one. They didn't keep each other separate the whole time. They actually, you know, were friends and grew up together and got close and and basically nurtured a relationship over the course of years before it got to the point where they were actually at, you know, okay, now we are of age, now we're ready, now we're going to go get married. By that point, a relationship already existed. In some cases, it was just a friendship, but that's still way better of a building block than a lot of other people tend to do. You know what I mean? And by the way, I'm, I'm not flinging... Stones from my glass house, or however that saying goes. I've been an idiot about this, too. That's part of why I feel like I can speak with some uh, authority on this one, because it takes one to know one, and I was a moron when it came to romance when I was a lot younger. There's a reason I don't have a ring on my finger. Um, And, uh, yeah, the last thing I want to mention, though, here, the, the obvious downside... Well, I shouldn't even call it obvious. It comes down to the nature of if, if you want to acknowledge that there is such a thing as innate love, for lack of a better word to use here. In other words, the idea that person A and person B, regardless of external stimuli, will love each other. Now, what I mean by this is there is such a thing as grown love. We know this. This is proven a bajillion times. Grown love is when two people interact with each other for a long period of time and grow to love each other and grow to carry out each other and grow to be friends and grow to be close, etc., etc., etc. But is there such a thing as two people who will be innately in love with each other? What I mean by this, if you're not picking this out, is it is entirely possible under either form of a of marriage for two people to make that marriage work. But if innate love exists, we must also consider the possibility that lack of innate love exists. In other words, it is entirely possible in an arranged marriage to be betrothed to someone and marry them and not love them. And you'll stick with them because you have to or because of tradition or whatever, but you'll never love them because grown love is also not a guarantee. It can happen. It does happen, 
but it is not 100%. You with me? Thus, arranged marriages carry that automatic coin <laughs> risk there. And again, the innate thing, you know, if let's the, the, the other reason this is relevant is let's say you're in an arranged marriage and you get married and yada, and you don't love them. Let's say a few years down the line you meet someone who you do love, innately, assuming such a thing exists. And then you get close to them and you get friends with them and now you're in a trouble, a troublesome situation, aren't you? And you either cheat, divorce, or live with the fact that you'll never be with that person you actually love because you're already taken. You follow the problem here? For the record, I don't think there's any good answer to the free marriage versus arranged marriages. But of course, this ties into the political marriage things. One of the things I find most fascinating about human civilization is how arbitrary we are. God, I feel really philosophical today, don't I? Babylon 5 brings out the philosopher in me. What do you want? Um, we are so damned arbitrary. Money. I, I, economics is a huge thing for me. You guys know this. It's one of the things I, I, I feel like I can actually speak on uh, with authority. One of the few. And we... Money is so damn arbitrary. It is. A dollar exists, you know, just to name an example, a dollar is worth a dollar, relatively, because we say it is. You know, one dollar is worth this much candy or this much gas or this much grain or whatever, because we say it does. And I know what you're saying, well, there's things in place to keep that in check. Yes, but those things are also arbitrary. It is all made up numbers, all of it, 100% of the concept of currency and economics is made up. The catch, of course, is we all tend to agree on how it's made up. We all we kind of make a baseline. Now, it is worth noting there's a very good reason for that. Because if we didn't all agree, we would have absolute chaos. We know this because there are economies in the world, but especially in the past, where people have not agreed on the relative value of currency or items or goods or whatever. And so some things have been extremely expensive or, or some things have been much more cheap as a result of that. So it makes sense that we all agree to this group think of a dollar equals a dollar, and however many pounds a dollar equals, and blah, 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 blah. But it's all just nonsense, really. Now, what does this have to do with marriage? What's the value of blood? Now, my opinion is that blood has this much value. Right here, zero, none. Family, for me, has always been chosen. My family is these, this group of people, and some of them I'm related to by blood, and some of them I am not. But that is my family. Those are the people who are closest to me, and mean most to me, and I mean a lot to them. That's my mentality. I'm not saying it's right, I'm not saying it's wrong, I'm not even saying it's different necessarily. Because you may agree with me, or you may disagree with me, that's fine, I'm with it. I've heard some people say, you know, you always have to stick by your blood. Or blood is thicker than, you know, other things that could be used here. You know, I've heard that mentality, I've heard people who totally disagree with me on that. And that's fine, that's not my point here. My point is that blood in political situations, and this is true even to this day in some cases, has always been arbitrarily valued. This is a especially true in the era of the Casus Belli in, in real life history. In other words, political marriages. You're married to this person and your offspring is therefore connected to those two families. Now that makes a degree of sense, but it got to the point of extremism, where blood was all that mattered, where the point where people would constantly intermix and intermarry at this point to the point where half of Europe 
uh, I should say more like most of Europe's upper echelons of the, <laughs> the government of the rich, of the people actually in charge, were all you know, related to each other and not even that far off related, you know, like second cousin kind of a distance at the most. And it, it, it got a little ri ridiculous. And I've always found it fascinating that blood is the thing that we ascribed to the significance there. Again, however, just like currency, which is why I brought that up, you have to have a baseline. If we don't all agree on the relative value in something, what you have is chaos. So I get using blood as the baseline. I do. Even though I don't agree with it. But then I don't agree with currency either, so what the hell do I know? But the point is, this is very relevant to the way this episode deals with it. Remember what I was talking about the, uh, the Centauri? Uh, and and the the value of blood and the value of Londo has three wives. Every single one of them is arranged. Every single one of them was done for purely political reasons. He hates his wives. He has no desire to be around them. We'll see more of them in the future. Actually, oh sorry, spoiler alert. Um, <clears throat> but all of those were done for purely political reasons. And that's the fascinating part about political marriages. First of all, is the fact that. There is some, you know, because of the fact that you two are now on paper connected, the lines in the sand change, if you follow me. Now he has more influence, or she has more connections, or he has more power, or she has more sway because of an arbitrary connection. I keep you in mind, Londo is on a station 75 light years from his wives. Doesn't interact with them, doesn't talk to them, doesn't do anything with them. And yet that connection exists, and so they and he are affected by that political connection. You see what I mean by the arbitrary nature of this? This, I feel, is taken to a very severe extreme when it comes to the Centauri. Uh, again, kind of like the Cassus Belli era in real-life history. Because of, uh, because of valuing that more than anything else. Uh, if I could use a weird parallel, Harry Potter, bear with me. In Harry Potter, there's this whole thing about half-bloods and pure-bloods, which, as is actually pointed out in the novels and the movies, I think, is ridiculous. There's no such thing as pure-bloods, not after a certain point in time. After a while, everyone's going to get mixed in somewhere because if you don't, the species doesn't endure. It doesn't work that way. So the only way to maintain blood is to dilute it, and that dilution will always get worse over time. And so the value of the blood itself is even acknowledged as basically being irrelevant, even though as it is being used as an arbitrary means to connect two people in, in politically. I really want to talk more about this, but my throat is actively giving out on me, so I'm just going to get to my final. So spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Ah. <laughs> Last thing I want to talk about, my spoiler. I love Veer's line. Damn tradition. I love that. It is so appropriate given where Veer is going to go politically and, and the eventual duties he will have. Um, that Veer, of all people, is the one who has that mindset amongst the Centauri of screw tradition. Uh, very likely that he will... Uh, he's the kind of revolutionary that the Centauri really needed, in my opinion. But I also want to talk about one other thing really quick here. My shoes are too tight. And I have forgotten how to dance. I, I, I know this doesn't really belong in the spoiler section per se, although we do hear a little bit more about this in the future, but children should be allowed to dance. I love that line. Children should be allowed to dance. In this case, dance, of course, being the obvious metaphor for love, 
for actually being with someone you care about. The story that Londo tells about his father, cold alone in the room, my shoes are too tight, is so appropriate since Londo thinks he's already there. And the funny, horrible, terrible thing is he's not. Londo hasn't reached that point yet. But he will. And I feel really bad for him for it. Okay, that's it. I'm going to give my throat a rest. I'm so sorry, through. I'm so sorry to you guys, but I promised I'd get this episode out. So <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and edit this and toss it up. I will see you next time, guys.